Welcome back to the Plowcast. I'm Susanna Black-Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. And I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief of Plow. And what we've got for you today is a conversation with Leah Labresco and Phil Chrisman on effective altruism. Leah is a Plow contributing editor, writes everywhere, and is the author of Arriving at Amen and Building the Benedict Option. At one point, she worked as a curriculum developer for the Center for Applied Rationality, where her responsibilities included throwing a murder mystery party that was also a lesson in Bayesian statistics and updating your beliefs. Currently, she and her husband work in Catholic lay ministry for students at Princeton. She also runs the incredible Substack community Other Feminisms and tweets at Leah Labrasco. Phil Chrisman teaches first-year writing at the University of Michigan and is the editor of the Michigan Review of Prisoner Creative Writing. His work has appeared in The Christian Century, Paste, Books and Culture, The Hedgehog Review, and other publications. And his most recent book is the essay collection How to Be Normal. Phil is a regular Plow columnist with his book tour reviews, and he tweets at at Phil underscore Chrisman. A certain man went down from Athens to Atlanta and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain conservative megachurch head pastor that way. Now this pastor had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and a thousand yoke of oxen and a thousand she-asses and a 10,000-person auditorium and much gyms. He had also seven sons and three daughters, for unto him was a smoking hot wife named Cindy. She did teach yoga. But she sinned not, for she called the class Stretching Our Faith, and never used Sanskrit words. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side, and he said unto himself, This is what comes of woke politicians, slimy, dirty people everywhere, a decent person can't even ride the bus, the Uber Uber drivers always want a tip. And he passed by on the other side. And came then two Duke Divinity School post-liberals, for there was in those days in that city a theology conference. And they saw him, and were moved to pity, and one went to help him. But his friend said unto him, Ho, consider and be sure, art thou moved by the charity that is from the Lord, or doth thou proceed from the superficial liberal humanitarianism of the Enlightenment? And the other paused, and did bethink himself, for he did not want to proceed from the superficial liberal humanitarianism of the Enlightenment, lest the Lord wax wax wroth with him. And at last he did say unto his friend, Look, this man suffereth, and wouldst thou be treated thus? Consider that, if thou wert this man, thou wouldst want the most for the least of these. And his friend replied, Woe, buddy, thou soundest like Rawls. And they did argue, and growing distracted, did pass by on the other side. But a certain disenchanted liberal technocrat, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him, and did exchange with him reddit handles. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again I will repay thee. And the host did say, The doctors say he needeth a new kidney. And the man was sore afraid. But he was an effective altruist, and he said, Lo, I have an extra one that I am not using, and hoarding it would be irrational under the circumstances. And he gave the man his kidney. And being recovered, he went back to his job as a consultant. And great was his reward in the kingdom of God, if he would allow himself to know it. That uh, was a reading from Phil Chrisman's um, uh, parable called The Effective Samaritan, uh, which was published in our latest issue. And we have here on the podcast two 
like beyond friends of the pod, like essentially symbi- symbionts of the pod, I would say. <laughs> Phil, Phil Chrisman and Leah Labrasco Sargent, who is also a um, contributing editor to the magazine. Phil and Leah, welcome to the Plowcast. Thanks, Susanna. Thank you. <laughs> and I guess none of us are going to sound like roles today. <laughs> Look, man, I'm I, I'm a mainliner. Uh, I'm, I might sound a little bit like Rawls. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I felt so dunked on. I felt like personally owned, dunked on, like... Oh my gosh! And there wasn't was those days was, in that city. I was trying to, to make you laugh uh, <laughs> more than more than to dunk on you. Um, so but, what are we talking okay. about? What today? are we talking about? <laughs> I think we're talking about effector of altruism, but we're not dunking today. We're not dunking today. We did do an entire episode that I actually wasn't part of because my computer was broken um, at the time. Uh, where Phil and Joey Keegan um, sort of did their Phil and Joey show on effective altruism. And so we will link to that in the show notes if you really want a dunking on EA podcast. But this is going to be, um, you know, Leah's on here, which means that we're kind. And so this is going to be the um, descriptive, a kind of tour guide to the world of effective altruism and its kind of adjacent realms. Um, And we are going to like... We're going to try to like understand on on its own terms what this is and what what the good is that is being aimed at. And this is like an easy one. This is not like you don't have to like dig very deep to say, all right, what is the good here that is being aimed at? Um, So. Pete, you were going to say something. Well, I was going to say so. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Phil, I I loved your little parable Um, kind of. You know, maybe some people take it as inside baseball. I thought they would. When we published it on our website, I was surprised that uh, on um, Elon Musk's website, uh, people felt really picked on by what I thought was a really funny parable. I felt oh, picked really? on. <laughs> I mean, I think it's I think it's pointed. Um, it's funny and it's pointed. Yeah, yeah. No, like plow, plow was the worry is sliding into um kind of uh attacking our own base yeah well which... is the screw tape ladders is the screw tape <laughs> ladders attacking its own base right like i i think phil does do this in a spirit of fraternal correction i hope well, phil. also like what is Plow's like the original for... parable is in the spirit of fraternal correction, fraternal correction. Mm-hmm. if we can't if we can't like make fun of our own base who can we make fun of i don't like, even know who our base is oh our base by the is way, like but, our base and, is duke divinity students come on okay. like <laughs> oh i thought it was liberal humanitarians oh well that i guess yeah i mean probably some trad cats as well okay yeah maybe yeah, not we, we did, yeah the, the trad cats also get picked on in in here yeah if anything um with the um yeah, there are parts of that where I'm dunking on the other, uh, and there are several parts of it where I'm dunking on myself. Yeah, that was an people. auto dunk. There was a lot of auto dunks there. Yeah, or on people I've I've been in the past. I mean, there was, you know, when I make fun of the 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 post libs, um, you know, that's partly me remembering uh, my own internal conflicts during the you know the early the early 2000s. Um, like the early 2000s were the were the time period when I got 
really, really, really into Stanley Hauerwas, um, who I, you know, still basically think is like cool and, and largely a force for good. Um, and, and I, I love his cats. Uh, mm. uh, every, every, every plow reader remembers Stanley Hauerwas's cats. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll link to that as well. That yeah, please, okay. please do. Cause that, that's one of the, that's, that's a truly iconic moment in the history of American theology, but you know, at the, at the, so I, I you know, the idea, um, that, uh, you know, you, you want to proceed from something other than the superficial human, humanitarian, liberal, good feeling of the Enlightenment. Um, you know, that was something I, I took very seriously. But then at the same time, uh, that provided a lot that that type of thinking provided a lot of the vocabulary uh, that was most immediately useful in denouncing uh, the war in Iraq. So uh, I didn't, wasn't sure how hard I wanted to be on it. So, you know, that's, that's not a, that's not really a dunk from outside. And then of course I, I bag on, uh, mainliners and, um, <clears throat> don't I bag on, uh, don't I pick on, uh, liberation theologians? Oh yeah. One? You pick on liberation theologians. Absolutely. Yeah. There's nobody who doesn't leave alienated from your parable film. Yeah. It's beautiful. Good. It's yeah. really beautiful. <laughs> oh, you didn't pick on Anabaptists though. Well, I mean, but post, like, I feel like, yeah, I feel like okay. the Duke Divinity School. Yeah, we can Divinity fit ourselves School, into the Howard yeah, West. Yeah, tent. you can. Yeah. yeah, very easily. I'll never, you know, at this late date, remember where, where it is in his works or, or, or where I saw it, but there's, there's actually a paper where he talks about his love of the novels of Anthony Trollope, where he he actually talks about how, um, you know, he, he sort of mines some important theological concepts out of, I think, The Warden and Barchester Towers, which I hadn't read at that point. But those novels are both just absolute bangers. Um, and he ends up saying at the end, you know, the, the fact that totally conventional 19th century Anglicanism uh, could could produce these novels shows that there are radical possibilities even in the even in the uh, even in the everyday even in the conventional which I thought yeah yeah I like that. I'm I'm into that man I'm gonna have to like take the opportunity to tell everyone that they need to read Susan Howach as well who's like this kind of 20th century update of of Trollope's um, ecclesiastical novels anyway we should get to the the hero of our parable and effective altruism um before we get into andrew trollope you know which would be a great we'll do that do we'll, we'll do another podcast okay but, you know what i think would might be useful Susanna, is there's probably people listening to this podcast who don't know what effective altruism is and why is the effective altruist um part of the parable and why is he giving away his kidney yes who is the effective altruist? What is effective altruism? Why is he giving away his kidney? What's going on? Leah, do you want to um, sort of take it from the top? What is effective altruism? Yeah, why don't I give you kind of the, the tight pitch and then the wild pitch? Um, you know, the tight pitch is that effective altruism is the same thing people have always cared about, which is when I give to charity, am I really doing good? How do I keep track on where my money is going? How do I pay attention to the impact? And what the EA movement did, especially through groups like GiveWell, was come up with a better way for evaluating charity than groups like GuideStar, which you had kind of checked, is this charity fraud? 
um, you know, is this charity spending most of its money on its own salaries? You know, if this charity says it gives puppies to orphans, do the puppies actually get delivered? Um, and what EA was trying to do is saying, hey, we don't want to just check if the charity does what it says on the tin. We want to check if it matters that you do it. You know, so if you're giving out puppies, malaria bed nets, vaccines, straight up cash, how much good does that do and how can we measure that? And I think it comes out of a real sense of the frailty of human reason that, you know, we want to do good for others. And it's easy for us to wind up like Phil describes in his story, you know, really just trying to feel like we're doing good to pick the easiest path to satisfy our own sentiments without actually being attentive to the needs of our neighbor. So effective altruism says kind of, let's take an experimental approach. Let's check what happens. Let's run randomized controlled trials of different charitable interventions. And I'll say my favorite thing about it is people shut down their organizations when they don't think they work. And that's something you rarely see in the nonprofit world. That's the the normal pitch. So if you've listened that far, feel free to get on to GiveWell, look at the charities, look at their bases for them, um, and strongly consider them. Here's the wild pitch. <laughs> uh, there's kind of a, a normie, normie core, which is where more where I am. And then there's that, hey, you know what I said about the frailty of human reason? You know, what if you know we're not just wrong about how good it is to give vaccines versus bed nets versus money. But like, what if we're wrong about whether the right thing to do is to help individual people who are alive now or people who might be alive 1,000 years from now or 1 million years from now? So if you're going to track the impact of what you do, you know, just like EA makes the pitch of why be so locally limited that you don't pay attention to global poverty, the wilder parts of EA say, why be some temporally locally limited that you're not thinking about one millennium from now and where you can have the highest leverage now to shape our light cone rather than just you know feed someone today? What if you could eliminate hunger? Not, not in the sense of feeding people, but in the sense of replacing your stomach with some kind of series of pumps. <laughs> Yo, what if we could photosynthesize though? I well, I mean, it'd be cool. Like. It'd be cool. It'd be cool. Um, so obviously, th this kind of this all falls under a larger category of ethics. It is. It is a. It is an ethical movement. It's a. It's a movement of philosophical ethics, focusing on like what should we do, and the kind of ethics it is is called utilitarianism. Um, it is a version of utilitarianism. It doesn't have to be utilitarianism. Okay, I was, this is what I was wondering about. Can you be an effective altruist virtue ethicist? And I know yes. that, Leah, you are the one person who I can ask this of. Yes. Uh, the answer what, is yes. Okay, how? Because I am. How? How can you be? So I, I would push back to say that the, the, question, the, the core thing is utilitarianism. I would say the core thing is just an experimental mindset. Um, and I think that's different than utilitarianism. They both have to do with paying attention to what happens. Um, but utilitarianism cares about, you know, I care about the outcomes. I care about the consequences. I'm a little squishy on what it takes to get there. Um, you know, and so you can wind up with people feeling almost morally blackmailed, um, where if I say, hey, Susanna, like, I'm going to feed 100 million people. And in exchange, you know, I need you to step on the small picture of Jesus, um, you know, you know, don't you have to do what I want? And you say, no, you're like, well, can't I turn up the dial and make it a million people? You know, and you get the sense of that. I think anyway, um, utilitarianism kind of lends itself to these sort of 
moral blackmail scenarios uh, where it's not clear how you hold a line. You've got to throw the switch uh, on the trolley and kill the guy. And, yeah. Versus as a, as a virtue ethicist and as a Christian, um, you know, I don't believe in that kind of consequences blackmail. I think there are moral precepts that matter. I think the way we form ourselves by our moral choices matter. But what EA gives me isn't so much utilitarianism, it's empiricism. That to use the virtue of prudence, I do need to know something about the world. And there are a lot of questions that are just factual questions about the world that I didn't have good answers to until EA people put time and money and effort behind. Let's check and see if this works. Let's interview these people. Let's do it in one province and not another and see what happens. And so I think it's that em empirical experimental mindset that's really the powerhouse of EA, not the utilitarianism. Just a little housekeeping. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast subscriptions. We'll be back with the rest of our conversation with Leah and Phil after the break. And uh, the other half of the word effective altruism, so we've talked about the experimental side, but just in practice, many people who subscribe to this or are influenced by it really are very altruistic. So the altruism side, I mean, I guess that's why they made it into your parable, Phil, uh, is it's remarkable at least what some people have done. Um, the person in your parable gives away, literally gives away his kidney. Um, Which is a thing that people do. Yeah, apparently is a, a very real thing. Yeah, I know multiple people you know, in real life who have done this because they're affiliated with EA. Leah is part of this movement, sort of. Like you are, you are socially affiliated. I'd say I am. Okay, I'd yeah. say I'm okay, part yeah. of it full stop. Yeah, okay, excellent. And that's why, I mean, just... Just to put it out there, that's also why it's worth talking about this movement and why we're, you know, I, I, I would say uh, we're all Christians here on this podcast, why, why Christians need to take it seriously, because this isn't just some interesting, um, you know, uh, mental experiment somewhere. The, this is something where real people are really trying to do good to, you know, in Christian terms, love others. I think yeah right. I think Christians need to notice when um, when people whose <clears throat> presuppositions we might find objectionable are just absolutely like lapping us and dunking on us <laughs> in the in the doing good sweepstakes. But then you do get these kind of um, these meta questions of things like. Would you rather have a world with billions of people who are 51% happy? Or would you rather have a world with a couple of hundred thousand people who are 85% happy? This all sounds very good, but like, is there something here that is like um, fundamentally misunderstanding aspects of being human or aspects of reality? Um, yeah, I don't think this sounds good at all, Susanna, <laughs> is the thing. Like, I think, I think there's a danger in philosophy um, of what I call like... Um, uh, high energy experimental uh, ethics, um, where you're just, you know, you're taking these tools and you kind of turn them in on themselves. So what question are you trying to answer? Like, there isn't a real prudential question you're asking me about right now that I can sift using what I know about human beings. It's it's everything abstracted just to the numbers. So we start to drift away from, is this, a, is this related to a real question at all? It can be useful as a way to kind of probe the structure of an ethical system and go, what does this ethical system say? How do we judge the ethical system? What are we using to judge it? But when we kind of make up moral 
questions totally divorced from reality, we have to make sure we're not kind of sneaking in false or just ungrounded premises. We're not taking our ethics out to a world that doesn't exist. You know, there's a lot of questions that are kind of fun and speculative about aliens, um, but we have to be careful that as we kind of make up our own aliens to answer ethical questions about, we might make up a kind of being that does not and will not exist and for whom there isn't necessarily a coherent ethical answer. Right. The questions, like the the kinds of questions. So what Susanna was referring to um, earlier with the the world of 51% happy people, uh, but or, or the um, world of like very, few, very happy people, but there's trillions fewer of them. This is that that's Derek Parfit's uh, repugnant conclusion, right? The the idea that if we um, if if we follow the implications of certain premises of utilitarian moral philosophy, we we have to we have to conclude that it's better to have trillions of people who are barely hanging on, uh, but who wouldn't who don't aren't actively suicidal than a, a world that is. <clears throat> You know, has a has a, a very few very happy people. That's a meta question that can tell us something about what a philosophical framework per, supposes, but it's not a question that helps me live. It's also, I mean, the thing is, for me, that question in particular, the perfect question, is interesting because both answers seem to me to be wrong. Like, if you if you conclude actually, what I should be aiming for, what is better is a world with fewer very happy people then you kind of you know at it at your worst you you do end up kind of like um extreme social darwinist you know let's just prune the people let's let's make each person maximally fit to receive the goods of the world and let's make there be very few of them and let's do a whole you know let's do whatever we need to do to get there and that also is like a wrong answer. So it's not like, so there's something wrong with the question. If both answers, you know, if the 51% trillion people world and the 85% happy several hundred thousand people world answers feel wrong in their implications or like, so there's, just, there's something, there's something wrong with the question, but we are, we're, we're also trying to sort of like find out what is what what are the things that have fed into into ea as a kind of movement and what are the what's the world that it comes out of and so i i kind of would leah do you want to like talk at all about rationalism and the sort of rationalist and then maybe the post rat um i guess uh trend vibe shift yeah uh, for world. for a little bit of back Background. I was a curriculum developer at the Center for Applied Rationality, part of the broader rationalist movement. And when I would tell people what I did, since it wasn't really obvious from the name, I'd say I was focused on defensive driving for your brain. That we know that we're bad thinkers in a variety of ways, in a variety of contexts. And part of that is kind of learning about cognitive biases and trying to overcome them. And part of it really is defensive driving, thinking about when am I least prepared to make a well-reasoned, informed decision? And how do I stay out of those circumstances or how, when I'm in them, do I kind of avoid making decisions so I can reach a place of greater stability and clarity? So this leads to a lot of interest in probability theory, um, in kind of stuff you'll see on the self-help movement of just habit setting, um, getting yourself out of bad cognitive ruts and into good cognitive ruts. 
which makes it a little like virtue ethics again, right? Like the point is to change the kind of person you are through deliberate practice and change of context. To what degree is a kind of virtue ethicist approach where you would focus on loves compatible with this? Like, because so with virtue ethics, you're very much, it's your thought, you think of it as not just like, or obviously you can be a very kind of rationalist virtue ethicist and be like, you know, you should rationally choose these virtuous behaviors, which will then make you into a courageous person or et cetera, which is not wrong. But um, virtue ethics in a kind of full Thomistic way is focused on um, the cultivation of different loves and desires in a way. Um, is that, are, are those terms kind of at all uh, apropos or in use? I think they're not a major part of the rationalist language, though, obviously I use them. Um, but I think people are more interested in talking about, you know, in the, the movements of the heart or um, when they talk about our loves, they tend to talk more about system one and system two thinking, you know, what we think in a kind of deliberate, verbal, reasoned way and what we think in a more emotional, hard to put into words way. And the rationalists don't disvalue system one thinking. You know, they find it, they write more about system two thinking because by its nature, it's easier to write about. It's the more language heavy part of how we think and feel and move through the world. But they're really interested in system one because it's part of how we know the world. And in some ways it's the part that's harder to look at because we have more trouble using language. You know, this is kind of the difference between when you, this is Daniel Kahneman talks about this as thinking fast and slow. System one is when you like know something is wrong. And system two is when you realize, you know, that, um, your your door has been left slightly ajar or like, you know, something you you notice something first, you then reason to go, why is the hair on the back of my neck standing up? System one isn't 100 percent accurate, neither is system two, but ideally they work in concert with each other. Leah, um, just for those who are encountering these ideas for the first time, could you kind of give a little overview of some of the blogs and organizations and possibly books Um where some of these ideas are, are developing and where these conversations are taking place? Yeah, you know, some of this started on a blog by Robin Hanson, an economist called Overcoming Bias. And then out of that spun Less Wrong, um, which, you know, kind of developed uh, first with Eliezer Yudkowsky, uh, dramatic, uh, like dramatic personality autodidact who managed to get people really into uh, growth and self-change through a series of like, Reasoned essays, short genre fiction, and a long Harry Potter fanfic. Um, <laughs> and you know, like, more power to him, right? Like, I have tried to get people interested in things with less success and more conventional approaches. Um, and then um, in the EA world, there are groups like 80,000 Hours, which kind of frame it through your career might be 80,000 hours long. Well, how are you picking your career with an eye to doing the most good? I've mentioned GiveWell, which is a charity evaluator group. Um, giving what we can, a pledge to give 10% of what you earn. Um, a number of groups like this. And then, of course, Will McCaskill, who both is involved in the EA, kind of the more normie parts that I described it, but then had a recent book on long-termism with the idea of how do we reason about our impact on the far future and approach our actions today with an idea of shaping that future. So Will McCaskill... Uh... Glad you mentioned him, Leah, because uh, Phil reviewed his book for us. His book is called What We Owe the Future. It came out last year. And he is a co-founder of a bunch of effective altruism-associated organizations, uh, including for the Center for Effective Altruism in uh, the UK. Uh, Phil, uh, you'd probably be uh, able to kind of give us an overview of 
of his book, which I've been reading. And um, I mean, I really, I really like the guy. Well, yeah, that's that was kind of my overall response to the to the book too. Is I, I found the I found the content of the arguments like deeply exasperating, um, but I, I couldn't get over the feeling uh, that yeah, he's probably a, a, a pretty nice guy personally, um, and I, I still kind of feel that way even after the. Um, embarrassment he's he's had recently uh, with his involvement with uh, what's that what's that dude Sam Bankman Freed and the collapse of FTX yes uh, uh, thank you for that that uh, that actual context that isn't just me going oh the guy and the thing and the you know and the, <laughs> just verbal gestures so uh, Sam Bankman Freed sort of the sort of disgraced founder of the FTX cryptocurrency exchange um, was in touch with a supporter of Will McCaskill, um, although, you know, um, yeah, a lot of people, I mean, and, 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 you know, my, my dad's a Republican, but, you know, don't cancel me, you know, sometimes, sometimes our, our, our friends and loved ones, uh, you know, they screw up real big, uh, and it, it doesn't really say anything about our, uh, we ourselves, um, <clears throat> yeah, I, uh, so I think, okay, I, I would agree with Leah that there's useful stuff that you can get out of some of these writers. Um, I, I mean, Yudkowsky, no, uh, that, that guy strikes me as uh, a little, little brain damaged, but, uh, but he McCaskill, helped me become Catholic. He's, he's 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 McCaskill is like the the like non um <laughs> he's he's the more acceptable face of the movement I think um and he starts out from he starts out from asking you know how can we um how can we make the world less miserable and and how can we effectively do good for the most people and those are good questions I mean they're yeah they're part of uh part of prudential reasoning um and i think for for me where he where he goes wrong is is what's called long-termism which is this sort of obsession with i mean i i think it's fair to call it an obsession um with plotting out far future like <clears throat> very <sighs> scenarios about the far future that seem rational to him, I think, but that to me look like they're resting on a series of like, uh, weaker and weaker and weaker sort of, um, arches upon arches upon arches of speculation. Um, so, you know, for example, he, he, he makes the argument that we should stop, uh, burning uh, fossil fuels very soon, which is like, agreed. <laughs> we should do that last month. Uh, we should do that 10 years ago. Great. You know, that's, that seems like the correct conclusion, but the way he gets there is to say, well, you know, uh, 
there might be a, a nuclear war at some point or something else that happens that sets us back industrially. And then we'd have to do a second industrial revolution. And we really need to keep some fossil fuels around by which our descendants thousands or millions of years from now can do a second industrial revolution. I mean, it would be really stupid to use that stuff up now. So let's, let's save it. I, I, like, Either that immediately sounds like almost like a cartoon version of philosophy to you, or or it doesn't. To me, it 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 does sound cartoonish. It's so. This is what Leah was calling the wild pitch for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Effective altruism. But I, th I think this is one of the less wild parts, right? Because I think what we often say, looking back at history, is that we want people to take a longer perspective to think more about the long-term impact of their actions. Um, and it turns out like what happens when people do that is you get some stuff that sounds really reasonable and some stuff that sounds pretty crazy. And the question is how you sift, right? Like, and I think that's not surprising um, that once we start saying what we care about in the long term, there's some stuff where it's more obvious that what we're doing right now is penny wise and pound foolish. And some stuff where you say, you know, what would it have taken for people historically to have realized they had to stop doing this? Um, and the questions get more complicated. And so if we're trying to say, what would it look like to take that big a leap? Um, people just start practicing taking big leaps and you get a pretty wide range of whether those leaps feel prudent or nuts. Can you, Leah, you, you said that uh, Eliezer Yudkowsky helped you to become Catholic. I know a little bit of this story because I used to read your blog. Um, but can you tell that story? Oh, I think it's a pretty long story for the podcast, but I'll say that. So let me just give Eliezer like the specific credit, a specific credit that he deserves. I talk about my conversion in my book, Arriving at Amen. But the thing that's really helpful from Eliezer is that I think he does blend these system one and system tools well. That's why he uses fiction as well as nonfiction. And he wrote really well about the urgency of changing your mind when you're wrong, really setting aside your desire to not change your mind um, and making, you know, thinking about where you might be wrong, thinking about where even the enemies you hate most might have a valid point as a heroic act. Um, and it was both kind of the kind of more explicitly rationalist practices that helped me think through the philosophical challenges to my atheism. But there's also this desire to be a hero and that, you know, heroism is found not in conquering others, but in submitting to the truth. And Yudkowsky writes really movingly about that. And it was helpful to me. Well, we will definitely link to both your blog and your book. I mean, that is one aspect to this movement, right? This love for truth and the willingness to do you know, whatever it takes, uh, when one recognizes the truth to set aside long held, you know, habits of mind and, and habits of life. Um, that really does seem to have something in common with, you know, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, for instance. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is very much like, if this, is, I mean, so many of Jesus's parables and, and his teaching has to do with let's really game out the what it means if the kingdom of god is real and is at hand like if that's true what are the implications let's act on those implications even if they seem crazy and that or imprudent or just bizarre and that kind of um approach and that kind of willingness to do that is you know one of the things that's called is faith um which is interesting because faith and reason are so often 
you know, opposed to each other, but like the ability to act on what is truly rational um, feels, you know, it is also faith. Like it, it, it's a kind of like trust in both, you know, in Christian context, a trust in God himself, who is reason and a trust that if you act according to what is truly rational, you're not going to be let down. And that, I don't know, like th there is something very interesting there. Um, one of the things that's happened recently with the kind of rationalist movement and with effective altruism, or, which is a kind of child of it to a certain degree, um, is that there has been this turn from, may, maybe turn from pure rationalism is the wrong phrase, but post-rationalism or the post-rats are a new kind of iteration of that same group or of many of the same people in that group. Um, and our friend of the pod, Tara Isabella Burton, has recently written a piece for um, the New Atlantis on the post-rats. Leah, do you want to talk a little bit about who they are and what it is that they are seeing and trying to do? I think the post-rationalists are kind of taking what I said about the being attentive to what you get from system one and kind of turning that to 11 a little bit. Um, and I think they have that sincere curiosity about what out there in the world is powerful for shaping how you understand the world or understand yourself. And then having a very magpie curious approach to if it looks like it might be powerful, let's lean in and find out what we should get out of it. Um, and that means getting into Enneagrams, getting into kind of wooier stuff, a lot of drugs, um, sometimes religion. But there's a sense of these are all work powerfully on humans and I am a human. So I'm leaving a lot that might be interesting on the table. If I don't lean into this, I'm, I'm skeptical of this kind of, you know, if you find something very powerful, you know, do not immediately snort it up your nose, like whether it's drugs or personality tests or religion or tarot cards, which I mean, there, there is a certain amount of like, wow, this could be very effective. And I mean, the, the thing that the post-rats remind me most of, actually, is Lewis C.S. Lewis talks about the way that um, in the Renaissance, the recovery of kind of classical reason as a, a way of approaching the world came at, and a, a kind of attempt to master nature um, through a kind of proto-scientific approach, proto-enlightenment approach, came hand in hand with... Um, I guess, magic, as we would understand it now. Like, there wasn't really that much magic in the Middle Ages in the sense of trying to use supernatural forces through, like, tinker with supernatural forces or do a kind of science-y approach to um, manipulating them. And there is a kind of, there's a certain amount of, like, Renaissance magic vibe that I get from a lot of the post-rats. Which, obviously, from a Christian point of view, uh, you'd, you'd absolutely say you know, stay far away. Because it'll work, because it'll work. <laughs> it'll work in ways that you don't want. But um, yet that, I guess what was interesting to me about Tara's article, and be interested what, what Leah, you and, and Phil think about this, uh, she interviewed one um, person who had worked at Will McCaskill's Center for Effective Altruism, and he said the reason he had gotten into where the things he was into now, he had grown up fundamentalist and stuff. So, you know, I guess there's that biographical background, too, uh, was that he felt that living in this world of P 
pure rationality of the suspicion of emotion kind of felt like living without enough vitamins. Yeah, I think I think you know what's you know you don't have to get to the post rationalists to get people who agree with that. You know, from way back on Less Wrong and Elias Yudkowsky and Julia Galef, who's another figure in the movement, where people are saying like we're not arguing that everyone should be Vulcans. Um, you know, rationalists for the most part see themselves as arguing for a more integrated humanity. You know, getting the most out of both deliberate thinking and your more instinctive, perceptive parts. Um, I'd say it's more utilitarians who take the Vulcan approach. I do think that's a different movement that kind of is a Venn diagram overlap with the rationalists, where there's that sense of your feelings are irrelevant, you have to learn to put them away. Um, And that's not, for the most part, the argument the rationalist movement makes. Well, Phil, your parable actually gets a bit at this, right? Because the, the, the effective rationalist who donates his kidney is a consultant. He's doing his 80,000 hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, that was mostly just me making, be, being mean about the the idea that you can cons- consult for a living. I, I I know some very nice people who consult for a living. I've just never, never wrapped my mind around the idea that, that, that that's that's an actual job. But I mean, the post-rat thing, I, I haven't read Tara's article yet. Um, I it, it looks interesting. I want to, I just haven't you know, I'm, I'm writing a book, but, um, the, uh, it, it reminds me of more generally, I guess the way that, uh, every attempt to sort of say, uh, we're banishing, we're banishing enchantment. We're banishing all that, uh, wacky, gooey, new age, you know, girly feeling stuff. Um, <clears throat> You know, we're getting we're getting rid of that and we're, we're getting down to like what is true. <laughs> um, every attempt at that ultimately ends up letting in, letting back in all of that other stuff in in other ways that are um, that end up sounding just as fantastic as as whatever it was you started out to critique, um, you know, the um like the way that people who who try to reduce uh you know human consciousness to sort of like oh it's just a, a kind of computing function you know then th- you end up following that argument out too long and you end up with people that arguing that like light switches are conscious <laughs> you know people people wind up back at a kind of animism um which like yeah i mean good cool i it, that would be really fun if light switches were conscious um, or, or, you know, uh, people end up making arguments that are like almost, almost like panpsychism, but I, I, I don't realize that it's panpsychism, um, uh, which, you know, to me, that's, that's delightful. I like watching, I like watching that spectacle happen over and over again. I, I like watching the, um, I, I like watching how, uh, these really minimalist programs uh, in uh, across various you know types of thought always always end up letting back in what they're what they're trying to keep out i i think it's amusing we need to wrap this conversation up but i think it would be useful just to end uh leah and then and then you phil so what can we christians learn from effective altruists what's what's the takeaway I think effective altruists are shamelessly 
earnest in a way that Christians are also called to be. Um, they're shamelessly countercultural, and they're not afraid <clears throat> to look weird for the sake of a neglected truth. Uh, and they really are like giving a lot is the other thing to remember, where there's no reason it should be only EAs who are doing altruistic kidney donation. You know, that should be a thing we see a lot of Christians do also. Um, so that real hunger for and curiosity of ways to give as much as we can um, and to ask, like, not only does the coat in my closet belong to someone else, but does the kidney in my body belong to someone else? Yeah, I like what Leah said. I, I agree about the earnestness. I agree about the willingness to to seem like a, a huge weirdo. And I, th I think, too, the concern that charity be genuinely charitable, <laughs> you know, that it that it not be uh, that it that it be about the effect that it is having outside myself, and uh, that it not collapse into being this this gesture that is for me in some sense, or that makes me feel better. Well, Leah and Phil, um, <laughs> we I think I feel like we were probably sixty percent effective at not dunking, um, which could be improved, um, and you know what you can measure, you can improve. Um, but I, I am really grateful to both of you for this conversation and um, we will provide links in the show notes for all of the stuff. We'll provide a lot of reading for anybody interested in digging into yeah, it. Yeah, including Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, if anyone wants to sort of go back to 2008, I guess, <laughs> and just like relive the last 15 years. Um Anyway, uh, thanks, you guys. And uh, we will be catching up very soon with both of you. And uh, go with God and be reasonable. <laughs> Bye, guys. Thanks, y'all. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books to regular calls with the editors, to invitations to special events, and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plow.com membership to learn more. On our next episode, we'll be speaking with the theologian Alistair Roberts about Mary of Bethany and Magnificence. And Alistair is also Susanna's husband. <laughs>